With higher prices and tight supply, there are energy crises in Europe, China, India, and elsewhere. But how did it happen and how long will it last? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is The National's future editor and co-host, Kelsey Warner. Hi. Hey, Mustafa. So we're talking about the energy crisis. There's a lot of concern that as we head into what could be a cold winter, that there will be even higher prices and even tighter supply, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Absolutely. Coming out of a hot summer, but a hot summer for recovery as well. So we're thinking COVID-19 recovery. We're looking at COP26 in the month to come. We're looking at a colder winter. And all of these factors feel like they're converging upon the oil, coal, gas markets right now. And we're seeing record high prices. Joining us now from London is Herman Wang from S&P Global Platts. Herman, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. So we're ostensibly talking about what it means at the moment when we when we say energy crisis. Um, for some people, it may seem a little bit vague. Um, can you give us a bit of a snapshot from your vantage point of, uh, of, of where we are at the moment? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we're seeing basically this this huge rally uh, across all pretty much all commodities. Uh, you know, energy commodities, uh, even raw material commodities. Uh, it's kind of this perfect storm that we're sitting in right now. We're in a situation where oil prices are going up, gas prices are going up, coal prices are are going up, and all these shortages. Now, some of that is related to our emergence from the pandemic, and and you've heard some uh, um, energy ministers from some of the Middle East countries. Um, that this this reemergence from the pandemic has gone faster than expected, and then you add on to that the various uh, weather-related issues: uh, Hurricane Ida uh, in in the Gulf Coast in uh, the U.S. Uh, we took a lot of production offline, and and that's still slow to recover. Uh, and then now we're seeing in China some weather issues uh, restricting coal, um, you know, coal production uh, here in the summer in the U.K. It was a very uh, it was a very uh, low wind summer, so a lot of wind uh, renewables generation was pretty low. All these things are kind of just magnifying upon themselves right now. And, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, energy kind of makes the world go round. So what impacts the energy market uh, impacts the global economy. And now we're starting to see some of these impacts on these high energy prices, the, these sudden rises in energy prices on the wider economy and, and fears about inflation and, and uh, industrial activity uh, and, you know, all these moving parts in the global economy that are connected to to energy. So, um, you know, it's just kind of a, a perfect storm of events that's happening right now. We're, we're now we're worried about energy shortages and uh, uncertainty is something the market always hates. And, and that's why we're seeing kind of the market behavior right now. I guess the question that, that might be foremost in people's minds, regardless of why uh, we're in this situation, is is how long is this likely to last? Yeah, you know, that's, that's obviously the... Uh, the big question that, uh, you know, if you're a Middle East oil producer, uh, Middle East gas producer, that this is what you're trying to figure out. You know, is is the market structurally moving higher? Is this a, a fundamental shift in, in the way that, uh, uh, you know, the market is forming out here? Uh, so far, what we've heard from OPEC plus, uh, the OPEC, Russia, Alliance, and then a few other countries, uh, is that, uh, no, they, they still think it's kind of a temporary phenomenon, uh, you know, this 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 perfect storm of events like, like that I talked about. There may be some price pain right now, but you know, you look at the forecasts of a lot of forecasters, not just OPEC, but uh, some of the very mainstream forecasters, they see an oversupply in the market developing perhaps in 2022. 
Of course, OPEC Plus is, is in pace to release these historic production cuts that they instituted in the depths of the pandemic last spring, spring of 2020. And they've been unwinding that by about 400,000 barrels per day. And if they keep on that pace, those cuts will be uh, completely eliminated by, you know, late 2022. Uh, and that's kind of the, the target pace that they agreed to back in July. They're sticking to that plan right now because of the way that the medium term forecast, I guess, looks out is that, uh, yes, the market is tight right now, but heading into winter, you've got, uh, you know, refinery turnaround season, refinery maintenance season. That's going to depress uh, some of the demand in the first quarter of next year. So maybe we return to a quote unquote more normal conditions and, and this, this temporary price spike is just that, it's just temporary. Um, but, you know, I think there are some warning signs, you know, that this, these high gas prices uh, fueling a lot of uh, fueling, if you might don't mind the pun, uh, the switching from gas to uh, fuel oil or, or in some cases crude oil for power generation. Um, we heard from the uh, CEO of Saudi Aramco uh, the other day that uh, he expects maybe about 500,000 barrels per day of incremental demand due to switching from natural gas to oil liquids for power generation. Um, you know, how, how long will that last? Uh, you know, the natural gas market right now looks very tight. Some of the big suppliers are, are you know, not able to really supply much more gas than they're currently, uh, you know, I'm talking about Qatar, uh, the CEO of Qatar Petroleum, and now Qatar Energy is talking about, you know, their ability or their, their restrained ability to add more supplies to the market. Europe, of course, is looking for more supplies from Russia. It's a big question about whether Russia will supply those supplies. Um, so uh, it's a really tight gas market right now. It's spilling over into the oil market. All, all the commodities are seeing a lot of tightness right now, and it's, it's starting to really uh, impact industrial activity. So looking at how tight things are right now, but a forecast of a return to normal, do you have any suppositions as to if something's kind of got to give? Are you expecting OPEC plus the U.S. or China to make any moves in the short term to, you know, pull us back from this rally? Yeah, certainly we've seen a lot of noise out of the U.S. cajoling OPEC plus to release more supplies on the market. And obviously the answer that they got uh, at that October 4th uh, OPEC plus meeting was no, not at least not not right now. Uh, now, the U.S. is continuing to, to increase that pressure on OPEC plus. You know, they floated the idea of releasing, um, you know, st stocks from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, you know, maybe a ban on U.S. crude oil exports. That, that's sort of like the nuclear option for the U.S. Uh, that got a lot of pushback, obviously, in the U.S. And so they kind of, the Biden administration has backed off on that. Um, but clearly there's a lot of pain. Looking at the U.S. right now, let's focus on the U.S. for a little bit. Uh, but the Biden administration, you know, his approval ratings are, are kind of, uh, they're tanking right now for a variety of reasons, not just energy, but uh, high gasoline prices are always top of mind uh, in the U.S. Uh, political sphere. We talk about the U.S. a lot as a major oil producer, and they are, uh, you know, one of the top producers in the world, but they're also a huge oil consumer. And the way that the U.S. politics are set up is that there are more consuming states than there are producing states. So especially Democratic-leaning states are more of the consuming states, you know, the Californias, the New Yorks, uh, the Illinois. Um, you know, not, not a ton of uh, oil. California has some oil production, but uh, we talk about more mostly these consuming states that are, that are democratically. So the Biden administration is very sensitive to that, perhaps arguably trying to uh, boost its uh, approval ratings by trying to address this, this issue of high energy prices, uh, which is in conflict with its long term stated goals of perhaps moving off of uh, petroleum onto more renewables. Uh, but uh, the reality is on the ground right now are that uh, we're seeing, you know, sky high gasoline prices by U.S. standards and the Biden administration clearly wants to do something about it. The other country that you mentioned, China, China, you know, is uh, also a major energy consumer as well. 
And as, as I mentioned earlier, we were seeing disruptions in the coal production. Earlier, there was a, a call out from the government to, for these Chinese energy companies to secure all their energy supplies at all costs, you know, whether it's uh, coal, natural gas, crude oil. And so uh, we've seen the, the China, China also release some of its crude oil from its strategic petroleum reserves. Um, they're trying to cool down the market as well. To you know, They're very sensitive about uh, the, the precarious state of their economy. Looking back to, to where we were before the sudden run-up in prices, thinking back to where we were in, say, July or so, you know, I think the global economy was on pretty decent footing. Uh, there was a recovery going on, and uh, recovery is going on apace. People were returning to work in their offices. Uh, air travel was slowly starting to open up a little bit. So uh, there's a lot of optimism in there. And maybe the market got a little too far ahead of itself. Uh, you know, there's a danger now of the economy overheating a little bit. And we're seeing a lot of those inflation concerns. And will central banks do something about interest rates to kind of cool down the growth of the economy a little bit? That's sort of the, the big question that they're facing right now. So it's so a lot of moving parts. Uh, this is a kind of a rambling answer, but uh, uh, a lot of moving parts to where we are in the global economy right now. And uh, these certainly these consuming countries, the U.S. and China, India is another one, nervously looking at these high energy prices. What does it mean for them, uh, both in their economies and both politics-wise? And then if you're an producing country, like a lot of these Middle East countries, you know, you want to uh, participate in this bounty of high oil prices to recover from all the losses that you suffered in 2020. You know, the annual statistic uh, outlook or the annual statistic review by OPEC released, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago showed a 43% decline in oil revenues um, from OPEC members in 2020. They're eager to get some of that back. So I think maybe that's right now why you see a little bit of reluctance on the part of OPEC+. Plus to open up the taps and issue some of these new supplies, especially if, as we go into 2022, the surplus comes about, as many forecasters predict. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's harder for the OPEC plus to rein in supply than it is to gradually release supply. Herman, thank you for that rundown of, of, of where we are and where we're going. But you, you touched upon something that, that leads to sort of the wider discussion around this and, and where there's been some finger pointing. You talked about the Biden administration's goal regarding more sustainable fuels. Lately, there's been a lot of accusations that the, these, these crises around the world are a result of uh, climate action, as a result of the energy transition. And there's been a big pushback against that, that theory by, for example, Fatih Birol of the IEA, who said those who, who consider this the first crisis of the energy transition would be wrong. However, if you look at sort of the, the facts on the ground, we look at sort of um, the shift of gas to markets in the East. You know, China using more gas, less coal, for example. We have um, the reluctance to invest um, in more fossil fuels as a result of, of the energy transition as well. Also, when we look at renewables, uh, we're not able to build those fast enough to fill the gap. The worry is that those who might make political capital out of the energy crisis to push back against climate action will use this as an opportunity. However, I think we have to also be honest and say that a lot of this is being fueled by the energy transition. Where it, it transition by its nature will be bumpy, will it not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that's going to be obviously a huge topic of conversation at the COP26 uh, meetings that are coming up in a few weeks. You know, and, and you know, will it devolve into this finger pointing, this blame game, as as you mentioned? Uh, and will that uh, ruin any chance of any kind of productive outcome of COP26? I think that's something we're going to have to watch very closely. As you say, you know, the energy transition, it was never, you know, it's not, it's not never going to be linear, right? There's always going to be dislocation and that pull 
push-pull relationship between supply and demand, you know, as much as organizations like OPEC try to manage that supply and demand balance, they're very rarely exactly in balance, right? And 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 supply is reactive to demand, demand is reactive to supply, and prices obviously interplay with all that. So anytime there is any market pain, it's always a matter of, uh, you know, people saying, who saw this first? Did we see this coming? We Who warned who first, right? We saw some signs of this this coming rally in the in, in commodities markets. You know, a lot of talk about commodity super cycle, Goldman Sachs perhaps leading the charge on that. Uh, still some doubts about whether or not that actually is the case. Are we in a structural super cycle right now? I don't know. Uh, certainly the last couple of weeks have, have supported that thesis. But, um, you know, we saw during the summer when there are signs that gas prices might or the gas market might start to get tight. Are some of these European countries and perhaps Asian countries, are they doing enough to build up storage uh, and planning for this? And, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that uh, wind generation here in the UK was less than perhaps hoped in the summer just due to, to weather conditions. Was that a sign that should have been read by the planners here uh, to avoid some of the crisis that we're seeing right now? Arguably so. These, these are huge political uh, or these are huge policy decisions that sometimes get wrapped up in politics, and that's where the complications come in. I think what, what's what's important for COP26 uh, participants, if I had any uh, advice to give, is, is you have to separate the short-term pain and the short-term dislocations from what the long-term goals are, right? And I think from the view of a Fatih Birol um, that has uh, you know promoted this concept of this net-zero roadmap, uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of perhaps misunderstanding or maybe misinterpretation of what that IEA report actually does and what it actually means from what I understand it's if the global community is serious about getting to this net zero idea by 2050 the reality of achieving that goal is that no no new upstream projects in, in oil and gas need to be uh, sanctioned um, now is the IEA actually promoting this as the pathway um, you know certainly you've seen the OPEC countries bristle about about this report and about any sign of suggestions that uh, uh, any drop off in uh, you know and in investment, and they will point at uh, what's happened in 2020, and even what's happened between 2014 and 2016, the last uh, big slump that we had in prices, when uh, in upstream investment really got curtailed, and perhaps some of that lack of investment is leading to our current crisis right now, where uh, we're not seeing we're seeing kind of the demand growth outpace perhaps some of the supply additions that we're seeing. It's, I think it's important to take the lessons from that and see where, where the investments need to be made across the energy infrastructure uh, value chain. Um, you know, and, and if, if, if you know, countries are serious about trying to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels, well, you know, where do those investments need to be made and those hard decisions uh, have to be made and, and understanding that there may be some pain along the way. Herman, heading into COP26, I think it would be useful. You spoke to an underinvestment in hydrocarbons, maybe not actually matching up with demand. Can you give us a long-term view on oil demand over the next coming decades? We think about net zero headed to 2050, but what of oil demand to 2050? Yeah, sure. I think it's really interesting what we've seen come out um, out of the uh, recent, uh, both the OPEC uh, long-term forecast, the World Oil Outlook that they released a few weeks ago. And then the U.S. Energy Information Administration, they released their long-term forecast last week. Both of them do not see a peak in demand uh, through the 2050 
kind of time period that they were looking at. It definitely plateaus when you start to get towards 2040, 2045, and, and that demand growth kind of levels off. But uh, last year's uh, OPEC world oil outlook, interestingly enough, was the first time in OPEC's history that they predicted peak demand. They predicted it around 2045. Uh, and then they kind of saw a little bit of a decline. This year, they've changed that forecast, and now they are uh, predicting that oil demand growth will continue through that 2050 period. What led to that change? Well, perhaps it was the emergence out of the pandemic. And like as I said, we're seeing the economy kind of get back to gangbusters, really, pre-COVID levels in many cases of economic activity. Um, so the IEA is going to issue its uh, world energy outlook uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they see the shape of energy demand going forward, uh, especially given their net zero roadmap. Will there be some cognitive dissonance, I guess, perhaps in, in what the IEA uh, says about long-term fossil fuel demand versus what needs to happen to get to that net zero? Will that be sort of the call to action leading into COP26? So long-term you know, oil demand still looks pretty strong, especially in the, the medium term heading into 2030. And that's the argument that a lot of these oil producers are going to make. A lot of these feeders, you know, you heard BP say during the, the worst of the pandemic that maybe oil demand had peaked. Well, we've kind of blown past that now. Those predictions obviously have not borne out to be true. So uh, oil demand is is still on the rise. The aviation sector is the one that's lagging behind, but it's showing signs of, of recovery. Uh, it may not recover until 2023, perhaps. But the rest of the economy, the rest of the, the oil market, is pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels. So if you're an oil producer and you're looking at these long-term forecasts and trying to plan for your economies, a lot of these countries are, are very obviously 90 plus percent dependent on oil revenues. They're rapidly trying to diversify their economies, but the reality is in the next 10 years or so, oil is gonna be a very important part of the global economy. They stand to benefit from that. And I think that's why you're seeing the Saudi Aramco's, the Adnox, uh, you know, expanding production. We have even Iraq talking about expanding uh, their production up to 8 million barrels per day from their current 4 to 5 million barrels per day of capacity. These are expensive projects, but uh, they stand to gain over the next decade um, if, these, if these predictions hold up. Herman Wang from S&P Global Platts, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Kelsey Warner, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison, Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.